Want to become an AI trailblazer in the product world? Pragmatic Institute's newest workshop, AI for Product Professionals, is your ticket to generative AI mastery. In this hands-on training, learn to master chat GPT and prompt engineering to transform your product strategies, rapidly create content, optimize workflows, and make razor-sharp product decisions fueled by data. Don't just keep up with the AI revolution. Lead it. Seats are limited. Enroll today at pragmaticinstitute.com slash AI workshop. Hello, and welcome to the Pragmatic Product Chat series, where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product management, product marketing, and other market and data-driven professionals with some of the best minds in the industry. I'm Rebecca Caligeris at Pragmatic Institute and your host for this episode. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome our most senior instructor, Paul Young. Paul has 20 plus years of experience in product management, product marketing. He is one of our most sought after instructors. He's played a variety of roles in technology companies through the years and in our own company. And he is always, always a fun person to talk about stuff with. So welcome, Paul. Thank you, Rebecca. You know, I always enjoy joining up and talking with you. And when you refer to me as most senior. <laughs> I knew you were going to say something. I just don't know how I feel about that. You know, I, I look <laughs> I look in the mirror every day and I say, you know what? I am the most senior. <laughs> <laughs> Got a little gray coming in on the beard, but yes. <laughs> most senior in terms of longevity here. Fair enough. That's what Fair I enough. Think. Fair enough. One of the few people who've been here longer than I have. So, you know, I like, I'm going to stick that in while I can. All right, today we have a really, really good topic, one that I think is really important to ensuring the success of our products and our companies and our careers, but one that's often overlooked, which is really sort of sunsetting products. How do we identify when it's end of life? How do we manage it successfully? Because, you know, we, we talk about it's as important the things we say no to as the things we do. And I think to some extent, you know, that carries on once you're doing it. You often, you can't just keep adding things on, right? You have to know when to, to let things go. So I'm super excited to dive into that with you, Paul. As am I. End of life is one of those areas that, you know, whatever analogy you choose, end of life, sunsets, you know, there's a lot of different ways to talk about it. It's, it's never fun, but it's always important because right. you know, if you and don't have a plan, then things will eventually just sort of go off on their own. And, you know, you want to have a plan, better to have a plan than not, Right. Right. And I mean, really, who better to talk about end of life than our most senior instructor? (laughs) (laughs) Well played. You set me up. You you played the long game for that one. I did. I did. But before we hop into this topic, there are, you know, some people have not had the pleasure of being in your classroom, which is really a wonderful pleasure, whether it's online or in person. For those who haven't, kind of give like the Paul Young origin story. Like, how did you get your love of product and your superpowers and product. Well, in the beginning, Rebecca, the dinosaurs roamed the earth. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So as you said in the beginning, I've got a pretty long experience in the industry at this point. I started actually as a software developer, self-taught. If you go back even further, my degree is in film, of all things, from the (laughs) University of Texas in Austin. I'm a big Longhorn fan, as anybody will tell you. And at the time, your choices were basically you could move to New York or L.A. if you wanted to pursue a life in film. And I decided I didn't really want to do that. So I was pretty handy with technology. I taught myself how to program. And I caught on with a couple of 
startups and smaller organizations here in Austin, Texas. That's where I live. And I was doing contract and eventually full-time software development with Oracle, Java, Swing, things like that. And I enjoyed it, but I also realized that was not going to be my long-term path because I was not a great software developer. And one day I was fortunate enough that the VP of engineering I was work, working for and the, and the VP of marketing, they basically came in together and said, hey, um, we'd like to turn you into our product manager. And I said, great, what is that? <laughs> and they basically said, we have no idea. Why don't you go to this training and figure it out? And so I went to a pragmatic training and started the journey of figuring it out and developed, a, like you said, about 20 years in product in companies of all different shapes and sizes, uh, really big ones like Cisco and Dell, also really small startups, kind of everything in between in both, in both B2B and B2C hardware, software, and services. And so it's been a really fun journey. And then I joined Pragmatic as an instructor to help share that journey with others because I have a lot of passion with helping people and teams grow and, and helping them do better at their role. And basically, that's, that's what's led us to the point of recording this podcast today. So... Pretty soon, awesome. uh, pretty soon it'll be the end of my journey and time to hand off to somebody else. But this is, uh, <laughs> this is always fun to sit down and have this chat. Awesome. All right. So we're going to talk about end of life or sunsetting, however, however you want to phrase it. But let's do a little like just kind of, you know, set up for the, for the audience, for the listeners. So talk about it. What did it, why is it so important? Well, it's important because every product ends at some point. There is no such thing as a product that goes into perpetuity. So we have to introduce a product with the idea that it's not going to live forever. You know, it's going to get overtaken by something. Now, if you're lucky, that product life cycle might last a really long time. You know, you think about IBM still has people on mainframes today, like mm. literally. And yeah, there are products certainly like that last a really long time, but eventually those two will die, especially when we're talking in the technology space. In fact, those timeframes are compressing in technology every year. Because the, the ease of innovation and the path towards introducing new stuff is lower. What used, like think about software, what used to be a, you know, five year, 10 year journey to like set up infrastructure and, you know, bring a team together and build out everything you need. And you need a reporting layer and a database, like, like all that is now gone because you just put your th stuff on AWS or some other cloud provider and you have like all the infrastructure work has been essentially solved. And now you can focus on your creative innovation, which is great until somebody else comes in and does something that displaces what you do. And so that's why end and of life is so important. We displace ourselves, right? I mean, sometimes the reason the product is obsolete is because we've created something better, right? But we don't want to just, yeah. So it's not always an external source and it's not always a bad thing, but it does, to your point, always happen. Or just the industry shifted mm. and what was really relevant is now no longer, nobody cares. You know, I think about there's a whole set of companies around the late 90s that sprung up to solve like Y2K problems, you know, none of, mm -hmm. none of which offer that service anymore because that's no longer relevant. And, you know, we'll see the same thing over time with GDPR and other regulatory stuff. Yeah, I remember there were a whole host of consultancies offering services around compliance for that. Okay, not that we're necessarily end of life in that, but the amount of innovation happening in that area now is so much smaller. All right. So how do we know when it's time to sunset a product? So I wish I could sit here and say like there is one 
industry standard and accepted best practice for saying now's the time, right? Now is the time to sunset a product. There isn't. But that said, there are some things that you definitely should probably look at. And the first thing I would encourage any product leader to think about here is that hopefully if you're following what, you know, Pragmatic and, and so many others teach, when you first came out with that product, when you first introduced it, well, right alongside that decision should have been a business plan. And that business plan, business case, business canvas, whatever you call it, that should have been kept up to date through the life of the product where we're looking at, you know, what are the key performance indicators for this product? Maybe for you, that's revenue. Certainly revenue for a lot of product teams that I go talk to, but not all. For some, it's, you know, the cash flow that it's generating. For others, it's margin. For others, it's, you know, the cost that it's taking out of the equation and the efficiencies it's helping us generate or the referrals it's creating. It could be any number of things. I, I worked with a not-for-profit in Colorado Springs that was one of my favorite clients. And they didn't care about profit at all because their mission was to connect the poorest of the poor children in what they referred to as the global South with donors in what we would traditionally, traditionally call first world countries like the US and Europe. And their product set and services were all about making more connections between those in need and those who had the means. And so for them, it's not about margin. So it, it, whatever metric matters to you is mm -hmm. what you should track. And whenever that starts to decline past the point where it's still viable or your costs to, that you incur to get that metric you care about, that is when you should start. Frankly, you probably should have already started when the trend line was turning south. But that's the thing we should look at to begin this conversation around end of life. And I do think you're right that it's often both sort of the the top line numbers and the bottom line, the cost, the investments that we're having to do to either continue to hit the growth we want or even to maintain the numbers that you start to go like, wow, you know, we're really putting a lot in here without necessarily getting the return. And the other thing I, I just wanted to touch on too is we we're talking about products, but I know from talking to you about this topic before, it's not always a full product, but there are sometimes features within a product that you need to sunset. Absolutely. So you might... This is where you're going to turn to your analytics. So much easier in perhaps software or services. Mm -hmm. You know, you can mm -hmm. use a tool like Gainsights, Google Analytics, any number of tools that are out there nowadays to assess the usage of certain features. Um, mm -hmm. But the one caution I'll give is that sometimes there are features that have low usage, but still create a lot of value. You know, you might run a report once a quarter, but that's the report you show to your board to demonstrate mm. compliance with whatever. So I mean, don't always assume that low usage equals low value. This is where we have to combine the quantitative data we're getting from our analytics system with the qualitative research and the interviews to make sure that the people that are actually clicking that button to run that report once a quarter, you know, or do they have some other way of solving that problem? Do they care about that? Like what's, what's going on there? That's a really good point, right? You can, you can easily go with it doesn't happen often and make that immediate assumption that it means it's not critical. But I think there is, to your point, a much bigger piece on that. Just like there's a bigger piece on costs, right? Like there's, what does it cost to service that feature or that product, right? As those numbers coming up, are we, are we attracting customers, but not like the ideal customer or, right, right? I mean, there's a lot of pieces into that. And to your point, that requires both a combination of qualitative and quantitative and conversations to really understand the full picture in order to make 
the decision and to make the case that something may need to be censored. Absolutely. I was going to ask you that I, I was just because we talked about make the case. I think that one of the things that people forget about with sunsetting and you, you've made this case to me several times is like there is a cost and an investment required to sunset a product and therefore it needs to be prioritized. And I think that that's something that that people don't really think about. How do you make the case? Because it's not a it's not a passive thing. Right. It really does take an active piece. And and how do you then prioritize that against all of the other items that are frankly sound sexier and cooler? Right. Like, oh, but then I could add this and add that. Well, I mean, it should it should show up with a roadmap. Right. A sunset item should show up on the roadmap, just like a new feature would show up on the roadmap. And yeah, frankly, Rebecca, I know you have you have a, a deep background in marketing. So I know this would would resonate with you. A lot of executives, when we go talk to them about new stuff, what they mm. think about is the development or engineering effort to go build that new feature or to go, you know, launch that new hardware product or create that new service. And, mm-hmm. and the development effort is absolutely going to be a big thing. But oftentimes what executive teams forget about that we have to bring back to the forefront of the conversation is that there's a marketing cost to doing that. Yes. There's a sales preach. There's a sales cost to doing that. There's tra- yeah. there's training, there's documentation, there's there's all this other stuff. Launching a new feature is a launching a new feature, launching a new product, launching a new service, launching a new whatever is a business investment, not just a technical investment. Mm-hmm. And the same thing goes in reverse when it comes to the end of life or sunset conversation. It's a business decision and business investment, not just a technical thing. So yeah, you got to think about shutting down the servers and you got to think about, you know, how are we going to turn off this feature flag and, you know, all, all the other stuff that comes with the technical, you know, turning that thing off. But you better have all the marketing ducks in a row. You better have your communication plan buttoned up with sales, especially in B2B, but also in B2C. I mean, we, we have to have all these things thought about and those things don't come for free. Anytime that marketing is working on a communication plan, is opportunity cost time. They're not doing stuff to generate new leads. Mm-hmm. But it might be worth it because the carrying cost for that product that we're getting rid of or end of life is so high that it's the same as generating a thousand leads. And so these are all things that have to be balanced on the roadmap. And that, that's why I'm an advocate for putting end of life discussions and, and, and items on the roadmap, just like you would a new product. I mean, it sounds like from what you've said, too, that there's both sort of an unlaunch plan, right? It's a launch plan, but the other way, because it needs to be really cross-functional and driven across the whole group and there's communication and there's planning and there's rolling. But also to your point, it needs to appear on the roadmap. It's not something we do in quiet and it does need to be prioritized against everything else. Absolutely. And and I mean, to, to take a SpaceX example, they launch their rocket and then they land it on the floating pad out in the middle of the ocean. Right. That's that's what the end of life is. Now, the the cool thing to kind of stretch that analogy is they reuse the shell of mm. that rocket body to create the next thing. And you could think about like we're going to recapture some of those resources to reinvest in the next new thing, whatever it is. So I think it's kind of an apt analogy for launch and then mm-hmm. and then landing. But I think your broader point that we're getting at here is that you need a process. J- just mm-hmm. like you need a yeah. process for thinking about launch, you need a process for thinking about end of life. And while I'm not going to sit here and say there's a one-size-fits-all process, there are mm-hmm. some common bones to that process or, or common elements to it that I think are going to be pretty similar 
across most companies. And I'm hoping that for most of the people that would pull up this, this pod and, and listen to it in the future, that you would recognize some of these elements and then hopefully implement them into whatever plan you're thinking of. So what do you think? Does it make sense to go through some of those? Oh, absolutely. Common elements? Everyone here is like, tell me now. Oh. All right, well, <laughs> They'd be so mad if I was like, all right, thanks everyone for listening. Yeah, yeah. Talk no, to you later. We'll see, we'll see you next week <laughs> where, we ta- where we tackle the biggest problems. All right. <clears throat> so let's, let's start off in a common ground that ties together everything that Pragmatic teaches. And if you're a pragmatic alumni listening to this, this will not be a surprise to you. If you're not a pragmatic alumni, I hope you are someday, but this will not be a surprise to you either. Everything comes back to the problem, as in what problem Mm -hmm. are we trying to solve? Now, originally, when that product was created and launched out into the world, it solved a problem for somebody. Now, you could use different words for the word problem. Some people call it opportunity. Some people call it need. Some people call it job to be done. We use the word problem. But the basic idea is that Every successful product solves a problem for somebody, probably several problems. Over time, the question that you have to start recognizing as we're moving towards the end of life discussion is, are those problems still relevant in the market today? Mm. If the answer is yes, those problems are still relevant, then we have to ask, okay, why is it time to sunset our product? Why are its metrics decreasing? Maybe it's because the market has become more competitive or the trend in the market has changed from on-premise software to SaaS. So our method of solving the problem is no longer sufficient. But if the problem is still relevant, then when you think about end of life thing, you should probably have something with which to replace the product so that you can still solve the problem. That would imply a migration plan. If, however, you recognize that the problem is no longer relevant, it's been superseded by other things, or maybe the problem has expired, like the Y2K example, or or a compliance thing that's no longer relevant, then you don't have to worry about migration so much and we can start thinking about a a few other aspects to deal with that customer population that might still be using that old thing. All right, but the first thing I always want teams to consider, what problem are we solving? Is that problem still relevant? If yes, migrate. If no, let's push that conversation to the back. We'll think about it here in a moment. The second thing we have to think about, or the second big element of end of life is communication. Communicate, communicate, communicate. I do not think it is possible to over-communicate in the end of life discussion. I mean, I guess in theory it is, but I I don't think I've ever seen it, especially in B2B because B2B customers are are busy. They are doing a million things. And depending on your product, it may be wrapped deeply into training and processes with their team. And if you're going to take that away from them or change things on them, then you have to have an answer to how they're going to deal with that. Now, are they going to have to retrain their team? Are they going to have to learn something new? Are we going to migrate them? And so that means the net effect here is that we have to give them sufficient horizon to deal with change. And the market is littered with examples of companies that didn't give sufficient horizon. And as a result, their customers got really upset. There was a, I I was looking for the name of the company before the, the recording today, I couldn't find them, but there was a company that built IOT devices, Internet of Things devices that were used in homes and businesses to monitor things like temperature and humidity and stuff like that. And the promise they made when they originally sold their product was that you would buy the hardware, you would get the service that was wrapped around it for free forever. And they figured out pretty quickly after a few years that that was not a viable business. So they changed their model Hmm. to say, no, actually, you're going to have to pay a monthly fee for the service if you want to keep using your hardware device. As you can imagine, the people 
that bought that hardware device were pretty upset that the thing they thought they were getting for free for life after they paid the initial was now going to be paid. And so obviously that was a pricing problem, but it turned into an end of life problem very quickly because their market revolted. They were throwing their stuff in the trash. They eventually had to basically shut down the product and the company because mm -hmm. they couldn't find a, a viable business model. So that was both a pricing and an end of life failure that resulted in poor communication. Because, oh, by the way, when they said you have to start paying for it, they said that's going to start next month. Oh, so not ideal. No, the on the other end of the scale, more of the ideal way. I used to work at Cisco systems and they actually had a really mature process for thinking about the end of life. And the way that they did it, I'll, I'll simplify it, but it's, it's actually on their website. If you Google it up, you can, you can read all about it. They actually divided the end of life into phases. And so like, let's say you are a huge company and you're buying routers and switches and other networking gear from a company like Cisco. You're investing probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in this gear. You want to know that when you're buying something, it's not going to like show up on the end of life list tomorrow. And then all of a sudden mm. you can't like make use of it anymore. So what they did, Cisco that is, they had a three stage process to end of life. The first stage is what they called end of sale. And if something popped up on the end of sale list, it was at least a year. They said a year from now, you will no longer be able to buy this product. So it's not going to be commercially available. You can, yeah. If you have it in your, in your workspace, you can still get support for it. You can still, you know, get parts for it, all that stuff, but we're not going to sell it anymore. All right. End of sale. That's the beginning. A year after end of sale was end of support. And so what that meant is once end of support happens, you can still buy parts for it. And if something fails, some component fails, you can still get that. If you need custom support, you can pay a boatload of money and get it after that date. But for the general public, we're not going to support it anymore. And then a year after end of support came end of life. And that mm -hmm. meant that even if you wanted support for it, we're not going to offer it anymore. You know, unless you're like a top five customer type thing, then we'll set up a custom contract with you. But any, anything at that point is going to be on an exception basis. Mm -hmm. And the net effect here is that gave Cisco customers a pretty long horizon of at least three to four mm -hmm. years to know that something that they had was going to go away and they could plan for it. And, and the communication was super clear, open and transparent, and everybody was comfortable. And so it just made everything easier. And it gave, especially those B2B customers spending a lot of money, the confidence to know that, hey, if I spend a bunch of money on this thing, I know that it's going to have at least three years of utility for me before I, I lose that utility. So I have the confidence that it's not, it's not going to go away. Now, I, I realize not everybody has the luxury of having a three-year horizon for the stuff that they're doing, but the bigger the spend that you're asking a customer to make on your product, the longer the horizon for end of life should be. That sounds like a pragmatic rule. We should probably make that a rule. Right? I know it does. And the other thing I really like about that, and to your point, maybe I can't do three years, but thinking of those as three different stages, both internally and externally, right? Particularly as sort of the end of sale being different necessarily than the end of support. And making that clear internally and, and externally, I think is a really smart play. They have very different implications and very different communication plans, right? We talked about some of the marketing burden on this. The marketing burden is heavier when we get to the end of service, when I'm going to have to explain the changes, right? There's certainly going to be an end of sale one where we stop promoting it. But, but like there's two very different 
messaging and campaigns and programs that we need to put in place for those two different steps. And I think often they get kind of grouped into one. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we can start the communication about that three-year horizon in the beginning, in the end of sale phase to say, hey, three years hence, this is going to be end of life, end of support and so on. That gives people the planning horizon they need. And that kind of leads us to our third big element, which is Mm. migration. If you're going to end of life something and you'd recognize that the problem that you're solving is still relevant in the market, it's just that our product has gotten surpassed in terms of its technology, its life cycle, whatever, then you have to evaluate, do we still want to solve that problem? Mm. And I would encourage you to still pass it through those traditional filters that Pragmatic teaches, is the problem urgent? Is it pervasive? Are people still willing to pay to have that problem solved? And maybe other opportunity scoring filters that, you know, I teach in classes like our focus class. Like, does this, does solving this problem align with your DNA? You know, we, we call that mm. your distinctive competencies and so on. There are lots of different ways you could look at an opportunity. But if you decide that, yes, this problem is something that we still want to solve. It's just that the current technology we have solving it is, is out of date. Then you're going to establish your business case for coming up with the next thing. Hopefully you're doing that in line with the end of life discussion, probably even a little bit before it. And the goal is by the time we start to turn this off, by the time it goes end of life, we have this new thing ready to go. And we can then migrate customers from the old thing to the new thing and give them a, give them a path a path of least resistance. It's kind of like, you know, water or electricity. Customers are going to flow on the path of least resistance. So if you give them a a migration plan and it requires very little action on their part, that's good for you because you have a better chance to retain their business. I remember there was a product that I was using. I won't bore you with all the details, but they they were migrating from one version of their software to another. And I didn't have to do anything, but they basically said, hey, by the way, you're going to be on this new thing starting in six months. And one day when you log in, it's just going to show up on this new portal, this new site. And I literally had to do nothing. It, they just migrated me automatically. The price was the same. It was just my experience that shifted from mm-hmm. old to new. And so like the, the, the reshopping decision never got triggered for me. A uh, little harder to do that in hardware where there's a physical device to swap out. But in yep. software and services, that's a lot easier. I would also encourage maybe thinking about how we would stagger the migrations because this is something that our instructors who teach the launch class here at Pragmatic get into a lot. When you're doing what's called a migration launch, which is essentially what the new thing is, you probably don't want to do a big bang where you move everybody all at once and and we're shutting off the old thing and we're immediately moving a million customers onto the new thing. Probably not a good idea because of the risks associated there. So we might encourage you to think about bucketing your customers into high, medium, and low risk buckets, and then considering which ones to move in which order, maybe starting with the low and then progressing towards the the high risk. And then the final part of migration is grandfathering. You may choose for a variety of reasons to leave some of your highest risk or highest revenue customers on the old version and leave the old version that you're end of life for everybody else alive for an extended period of time for those big customers, just to give them even more runway. Because if they're a really big customer or they're really reluctant to change, then sometimes forcing them through the migration path will actually force a purchase decision on their part. 
where they say, ah, not worth it anymore. If I'm, if I'm going to be changing anyways, I might as well look at what else is out there. And then they'll start shopping, which is bad. And so maybe I'll leave them on the old thing for a period of time or progressively migrate them if that's possible. You can't do that forever because eventually we do have to turn off everything. But, you know, consider what grandfather might look like for those highest risk customers. Thanks. Thanks. Well, that gives us a lot to kind of think about and how we, you know, first is looking at the problem. Is it still there? Then it's thinking about sort of phasing out the idea of end of life and end of sales support and then the migration, which I think is really key. One of the things that you always talk about when you teach a well, focus, but most of your courses is, is about the importance of knowing, of, of setting out in the beginning, how we know we'll be successful. Like we will know this is successful when X. And we talk a lot about metrics and we talk a lot about that when we kind of talk about launching a product. What kind of things, how do we measure the success of a, of a sunset? That's a great question. Because I, I, I mean... There are some things that are obvious, like revenue. Did we migrate the revenue from old to new? But it might always not be a one-to-one because often what you'll find is that, let's take something like CRM systems from old to new. Like a lot lot of people may not remember this. There were CRM systems before Salesforce. There was a a very popular CRM system called Goldmine. And Ah, and you might remember Goldmine. (laughs) But Goldmine was a premise-based software system. So back in the day, you had to have an IT team that would run stuff in your, you know, server closet somewhere and you would install Goldmine on your premise and you would host all your data yourself and so on. This is all pretty SaaS. They had a very different cost model, a very different pricing model and so on than Salesforce, who's able to centralize all the infrastructure and host it for you. Salesforce is charging per seat per month, whereas, you know, I don't exactly remember how Goldmine and other premise-based platforms charge, but it wasn't per seat per month. They had no way to track that. It was all based on mm-hmm. your premise. And so the, the, the key takeaway there is that the revenue model for a premise-based software system looks different than for a SaaS software system. So if you're moving, if you're end of life one model and you're coming up with the new model and they have different revenue models, then it might not look necessarily one-to-one. Uh, got it. And that's okay. Like maybe you're moving from CapEx to OpEx and your lifetime value of the customer is larger, but the initial money you get from them in the front is smaller. And so maybe LTV is a good way to look at it, lifetime value of the customer. Certainly your CAC is going to be smaller if you're migrating somebody than if you're getting them for Mm -hmm. the first time. Usage might be another good thing to look at here and also cost. You know, hopefully with the new thing, our cost is more reasonable than the old thing. But again, it's going to go back to your business plan. Like when you look at your business plan, when you set it up for the old thing versus the new thing, how do we define success there? Percentage of customers migrated might be another one. Right. I was thinking about that too. Like there's a churn discussion there. And again, to your point, sometimes I may be trying to get rid of, not trying to, that's terrible, but, but you know, we're, we are intentionally focusing on a smaller segment, right? And so I think all of those are ways it could be successful, but I think the key is to figure it out. Like what is the timeline we want this done with? What are the expectations we think will happen with our customers? How do we expect that to change revenue? And even how, you know, if, if some of this is less about migration and more about like, hey, this one is a big cost, how are we deploying those resources? How much resources are left after there? I mean, there's there's so many reasons that you might want to sunset that it's hard to be like, here are the metrics. Right. But I think it's really important that you set those out as an organization so that you know, hey, this performed how we thought it would or not. Well, here's an opportunity for, you know, you, the product leader, to step back for a second, just take a deep breath and say, who are the customers that we most want to serve going into the future? 
because mm. the, the customers or, or segments in the market that you most want to serve may not be those that you're serving today. There may be some overlap, but perhaps I want to focus in on those customers that have the highest willingness to pay from those that are currently using the product today. And I'm really going to focus on their needs in the new thing, which means that maybe I'm not going to replicate some of the functionality that they don't care about. I actually was dealing with this with a student who came to one of the classes I taught just a couple of months ago. And, and she was telling me that she was going through a migration, end of life in an old product, establishing a new one to take its place, and was getting a lot of pressure from her sales and from her executive team that the new product had to do everything that the old product did. And we can't, mm. and we can't migrate until it's like a one-to-one. Everything the old thing mm. does, the new thing has to do as well. And, and the answer to that is no, it actually doesn't. And so there, there's actually a process here probably deeper we have time to get into on this podcast, but I would encourage people to Google it and you can learn more about it. It's called functional decomposition. And the idea of functional decomposition is that normally we start with market research, we write requirements based on the problems we find, and then we build a product based on those requirements or user stories. Functional decomposition is the same thing going in the opposite direction. So I'm going to start with the product, probably the one I'm end of lighting, and I'm going to decompose that back down to stories and the problems mm. that we're solving. And it's a good way to make sure you have a complete picture of all the stuff that's in the current product today by decomposing all of its functionality back into requirements and problems. But it's also a great opportunity to ask which of those problems are still relevant. Because yeah. there's a really good chance that there are some things in the product today that you're, that you're end of lifing that don't need to exist in the new product. And mm. you could actually gain efficiencies by killing it. You can make the UX more simple. There's all sorts of opportunity there to improve and, and look at with a critical eye. Like when, when else do you have the time to like get rid of something? It's really hard to get rid of something. We never have the resources for it. But now we do in this end of life discussion. Well, that's, it's really smart too, because you want to, when you've identified the problems we're solving, the idea is that the new solution must solve those same problems, not have those same features. And if you can't make that translation for the audience, you are going to be, sales is going to be like, well, why isn't the blue button still there? Or, you know, customers, like you need to be able to translate that to, look, we're still solving the same problem. We are now solving it better in this version over here. Yeah. Or, you know what? We assessed how we were solving that problem in the old product. And we saw in our analytics that only 0.02% of our users ever actually used that feature. And so we've mm -hmm. made a conscious decision not to carry that forward. Or, or maybe we've decided if somebody wants us to do that thing for them or solve that problem for them, we're going to do it manually using people to manually run a report or manually execute a service that was previously in software, hardware, firmware, whatever. And so not every solution to the problem has to be baked into the product. You can do stuff manually. It's okay. You probably don't want to scale that, but it is okay to do stuff manually if it's an exception basis, if it allows you to gain a, a big efficiency in, in the product itself. Absolutely. All right, Paul, we talked about lots of different things today. And I think we really got some great information. You gave us some great like structure and blue, um, sort of structures of how to think about and how to approach sunsetting. If you were going to have listeners do two things differently tomorrow, based on what we talked about today, what would it be? I mean, number one, if you don't have that business case for your product, you need to establish mm. it. And when I say business case for the product, understand, I'm not talking about a 75 page Word doc or set of slides. It could be something much more lightweight, but 
maybe some of you use a Canvas approach. You know, we're we're about to start teaching more of a, a Canvas approach in our, in some of our classes, and I think that's a really valuable way of looking at it. And it's a lot easier to set up. So, regardless of the the format that you use, what we need to gain agreement around from the executive team through the product team down through engineering support, everybody. What problem are we solving, and what are the metrics we use to judge success or failure for this problem? Once that conversation is established, then we have a baseline to look at to know when it's time to kick off the end of life. When, when that trend line starts to turn in the wrong direction, when we've tried a bunch of actions to get the trend line to turn back and it still isn't, mm -hmm. when things are getting more competitive, we need to kick off end of life discussions, which means evaluating is the problem still relevant or is it not? And if it is, let's replace it with something new and let's start the second thing I wanted people to change, which is a structured end of life communication across the business yeah. and the customer base. End of sale, end of support, end of life. Nothing magical about those three stages. You could make them different for your business, but give your customers runway and give the market runway. Give them the confidence that when they buy something today, they know that it's still going to be relevant for whatever period of time. And once it shows up on that list to end of life, we have a process to take care of them and we're going to have a plan to get them to something better. Awesome. All right. You know what, Paul? It is always a pleasure to have you on the show. I appreciate you coming on. Always. Love talking to you, Rebecca. Have a great rest of your week. Great summer. Awesome. All right. That does it for today's episode. Thank you everyone for listening. And don't forget to join us next week when we tackle another great topic designed to help you elevate your product, your company, and your career. <laughs>